Thanks for joining me. If you're watching by replay, thanks for uh, joining. If you're jumping on live, thank you so much for taking the time out to spend with me. And I'm excited about uh, what I'm going to talk about today. And uh, it was great, uh, great to get away. Did not spend a lot of time looking at news media or on social media or any of that kind of stuff while I was on vacation, mostly just relaxed and had fun with the family. Um, and it was a really great time. <clears throat> but uh, I do want to make some comments about what's happening and Bible prophecy and where we're at and talk about time in general and how we categorize time. You're going to need to put your thinking caps on with me today because I, I want to challenge or just invite you to think about some things in an interesting way. Uh, I had already decided to do this video and on the plane ride home, <clears throat> I've been digging into the uh, exhaustive works of a guy named Rudolf Steiner. Rudolf Steiner um, was a philosopher. He was an occultist. He started the Waldorf School with a totally different vision for education. He lived uh, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. I'm finding his material to be incredibly profound, um, just digging into it. So this isn't an endorsement for Rudolf Steiner and his teachings and things like that. I'm just, uh, but I'm really enjoying it. But as I was reading, thinking about how I wanted to talk about the end times and what's going on in the Middle East, I was reading and I came across this passage from his book on mystical Christianity that I want to read for you, where he quotes, uh, or paraphrases at least, um, the ancient philosopher, the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who uh, was writing in about 500 years before Christ. And um, I think it lays a good foundation for how I want to talk about this today. So I want to read this passage. But before I do, I want to preface my comments by talking about something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, some of you on here, in fact, a lot of you on here might be familiar with what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. But for those who aren't, um, basically, to make it very simple, it is a phenomenon or an effect that happens in society in groups and with people and what the Dunning-Kruger effect says that the person who knows the least about a topic you can take any topic politics religion uh, science any topic you want right time end times what it says is that the person who knows the least about the topic is the most confident in their opinion about the topic. Let me say that again. The person who knows the least about a topic is the most confident about their opinion on the topic. And on the other side of that spectrum, or polarity, we've been talking about polarities, is the person who knows the most about a topic uh, is the least confident or the least certain in their opinions about a topic. And there's reasons for that that I'll go into <clears throat> And I think this is so true. And I think social media is uh, the way sometimes we comment or share on social media or someone like myself shares on topics that are outside my wheelhouse. We really have to watch out for the Dunning-Kruger effect or we can, if we understand it, we can see that it's often the Dunning-Kruger effect on display. So what the Dunning-Kruger effect said was that if you take a group of people and you put a few experts on a topic in there and you put a few people that know just a little, just a very little bit about it, and you put them in a group 
and they give their presentation of what they know, the people with the least amount of knowledge are going to sound the most confident, the most certain, and the most persuasive to the group. And the people who know the most about the topic are going to sound, uh, come across with some uncertainty. They're going to sound less confident and therefore they're going to be less persuasive to the group. And so the sad reality, social reality, sociological reality of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that the masses will often follow the least informed opinion because it simply sounds the most confident or the most persuasive. So I'm saying this to say that I'm acknowledging that I could be very susceptible to the Dunning-Kruger effect on the end of speaking too confidently about a topic that I don't know a lot about. And so just take what I'm saying with a grain of salt and realize that when I'm talking about some of the stuff that I'm talking about today, I'm by no means an expert. I have just enough knowledge to be very dangerous, especially when it comes to the Middle East and Israel and Palestine and the conflicts there. I'm not a... Never even had a class in geopolitics or anything like that. Um, and you really can't get to the complexity of a situation by just reading articles in the news. So I think we know that, right? So anyway, we'll come to that in a minute. But I want to lay a foundation for what I want to talk about by, again, quoting from Rudolf Steiner in his book on mystical Christianity, where he's quoting Heraclitus. And so I'm going to read this passage. Uh, give me a second. So it says, for as Heraclitus says, We cannot swim twice in the same wave. Neither can we hold, neither can we lay hold of a mortal being twice in the same state. For through the violence and rapidity of movement, it is destroyed and recomposed. It comes into being and again decays. It comes and goes. Therefore, that which is becoming can neither attain real existence because growth neither ceases nor pauses. For as Heraclitus says, not only is the death of the fire the birth of the air, and the death of the air the birth of the water, but the same change may be still more plainly seen in man. The strong man dies when he becomes old, the youth when he becomes a man, the boy on becoming a youth, and the child on becoming a boy. What existed yesterday dies today. What is here today will die tomorrow. Nothing endures or is a unity, but we become many things. Whilst matter wanders around one image, one common form. For if we were always the same, how could we take pleasure in things for which we, which formerly did not please us? How could we love and hate, admire and blame opposite things? How could we speak differently and give ourselves up to different passions unless we are endowed with a different shape, form and different senses? For no one can rightly come into a different state without change, and one who is changed is no longer the same. But if he is not the same, he no longer exists, and is changed from what he was, becoming something else. Sense perception only led us astray because we do not know real being and mistook it for that which is only an appearance. (laughs) Pretty powerful stuff there. I love, I love, love, love how he talks about you can't swim in the same wave twice. I think there's a uh, saying in the East, you can't step into the same river twice. Because it's talking about that life is dynamic, that there is constant processes of movement and change, so nothing is ever actually becoming or nothing is ever actually uh, 
staying stable or staying the same. So one definition of insanity that I might proffer, uh, you know, people say uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I would proffer this, that to expect permanency, to expect something to be permanent in a world that's in constant motion and change, or to expect permanency in a world that's impermanent is also a definition of insanity because it's not engaging with reality. But I love how Heraclitus points out that we can never meet the same person twice. We can never lay hold of the same mortal man twice. That we are in a constant state of change. That our lives are dynamic. That the strong man dies when he becomes old. That the youth dies when he becomes the strong man. That the boy dies when he becomes a youth, etc. and so on. And so I know for a fact I'm not the same person I was last week. I'm definitely not the same person I was six or seven years ago. So in that sense, the person that I was no longer exists. That person doesn't exist anymore. And the same thing with you. Uh, and so what's interesting is that we try to relate to each other without, based on what I called another video, the introjects or the map and model of the person that we have in our mind that oftentimes, most of the time, takes no account for the dynamics of thought and change and new decisions and will and circumstances and all the things that affect us and make us different people. So you're never relating to the same person twice. You're never talking to the same person twice. You're never the same person relating to someone else or talking to someone else twice. Um, so, so there's this constant dynamic of change that is going on that causes Death and rebirth, right? Death and rebirth. So let me just start because here's where I want to start the video. That's how I want to lay the foundation. That's how I want you to be thinking about this as we go forward into the conversation. But I can only imagine, fortunately for me, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, in my social media presence, you know, things that show up on my feed and stuff like that, um, I have so alienated, uh, <laughs> things from my past that were, you know, steeped in Christian fundamentalism and biblicism and all of that. Uh, or I so alienated them or they so alienated me, whatever the case may be. Change, right? Dynamic change, not the same person. <clears throat> I don't see any, I don't see anything about the Middle East conflict between Israel and Palestine coming up that's being put out in the context of Bible prophecy or Christian thought. So I'm speculating here, and I'm sure those of you that are on here live can let me know if I'm speculating. <laughs> if my, I mean, I, you know, I'm speculating. I'm telling you, I'm speculating. Whether my speculations are accurate and correspond to what's going on out there in those circles, or whether something has changed that's very different out there than what I'm aware of. But I would imagine, based on my experience in those groups, that. That those groups, those teachers that follow Bible prophecy, that follow Revelation, people that are preaching in churches, they've got to be just out of their minds with this stuff. They got to be just loving this stuff. The conflict in the Middle East between Hamas and Israel and the fact that it corresponds with the Feast of Tabernacles, 
which is a Jewish feast that was celebrated. I think they either started the attack the last day of Hamas did, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jews, or the day after <clears throat> the Feast of Tabernacles. So you'll notice that a lot of Bible prophecy teachers will always kind of put <clears throat> either the birth of Jesus or the second coming of Christ somewhere around the Feast of Tabernacles. That usually factors into their Bible prophecy. So you've got the Feast of in a, in a week, roughly, you know, let's say seven to ten days, <clears throat> whatever it is exactly, you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, you've got Hamas invading Israel and probably the most violence, well, no, no probably about it, the most chaos and violence that I've seen, at least reading the articles, again, where the Dunning-Kruger effect, that I've seen in my lifetime in the Middle East the most tumult that's going over there, going on over there. <clears throat> and then you have the solar eclipse all happening within this span of time. So I just have to imagine that Bible prophecy preachers are going nuts this morning or pastors are going uh, just on steroids with this stuff like cocaine bear <laughs> with the fact that you just had the Feast of Tabernacles, we've got conflict in the Middle East, which we've really been hoping for and praying for. We've got Israel under attack. We've got uh, the world uh, taking notice and taking sides. And we had, a, at least in parts of the country or parts of North America, a full solar eclipse yesterday. Now, you tell me. In the comments, those of you that are in touch with those circles, you tell me in the comments if I'm getting this wrong yet. <laughs> so I, I did feel it would be insensitive of me not to at least address uh, what's happening in the Middle East. And it is a complete humanitarian disaster. And again, here, here's the thing about it. This situation is so complex. There is so much complexity in what's happening over there that it's tempting for us to try to just put everything into simplistic categories. So going back to the Dunning-Kruger effect, the reason that experts are less are more tentative about what they share and less certain about what they share clearly has nothing to do with how much knowledge or expertise they have on the situation. It's because it's because of their expertise that they have engaged with the complexity of the topics that they're talking about, that these topics are dynamic in, a, in and of themselves, that information changes, that knowledge and ideas and theories change. There's a ton of complexity to it. And as a general rule, when we're living our lives, we don't like complexity, and we can't handle complexity mentally, intellectually, emotionally, on multiple levels. That's why you see very few people who are experts in many different fields because it's just too much complexity for most human minds to handle. So in order for us to get through life, we like to categorize and interpret events and situations and ideas in the simplest forms possible. And the most basic category, the most basic, most simple way to map something is in a black or white, either or category, 
and then have your ideas or opinions land in one side or the other. So you're really only talking about one category. You're, you're only dealing with the first level of complexity. I hope that makes sense. <clears throat> you're only dealing with the either or. And so that's what happens in a lot of these conflicts, right? We're either for the state of Israel or we're for the Palestinians or we're for this, that, or the other. And then you bring religion into it, and you bring Bible prophecy into it, and the misapplication and misinterpretation of Bible prophecy. Now you have a different kind of either-or category. You have a dualism of good and evil. Everything's either 100% good or 100% evil. So so a lot of what happens with these Bible prophecy teachers is they, they are operating at the most basic level of, uh, complexity, which is either or, and they're operating out of this dualistic category of God is on this side and, non, and against this side. And so it's very easy then to stand up and make predictions and preach and make proclamations and talk about things in a category of Israel as God's chosen people. God wants Israel to occupy the land over there. They have a divine right to it, and they factor into God's plan to bring Jesus back and bring the Antichrist on the scene, and God is all good. So, therefore, it doesn't matter what the, 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 the state of Israel does. It doesn't matter. that They've got a divine right, according to these people. They have a divine right to land. So it doesn't matter what atrocities. It doesn't matter if they displaced a million people from their homes. That doesn't matter uh, That because... That's God. That's good. That's light. You see how twisted and distorted this becomes? And so then anything that opposes that, if, if, I mean, I guarantee you, if we're not sending troops over there to help Israel fulfill God's plan, then, you know, God's going to punish America because we're on the side of evil. So anything that opposes what Israel's doing is, is automatically evil. And so you'll see people probably making comments like this is simple. This, you're either on the side of God or you're on the side of the devil. You're either on the side of right or you're on the side of wrong. You're either on the side of the good or you're on the side of the bad. Now on the flip side of the coin, you have people who have a little bit more, I think, <clears throat> understanding of the nature of what happened historically to create the state of Israel and um, the atrocities that have been committed against the Palestinians, which, by the way, a lot of Palestinians are Christians, just to let you know that. <laughs> um, there's a significant Christian presence among Palestinians. So they'll look at it from the side of Israel's the oppressor, Israel's the one in power, we are for the marginalized communities, and we're for the marginalized communities, so therefore we're on the side that is against the bully, even though Israel didn't initiate this particular conflict. It was initiated by Hamas. Hamas, this is the cry of the oppressed. And we can wind up doing the same thing of going into this sort of either or very simplistic black and white category. The truth of the matter is this. Historically, the truth is this. It is so complex to understand um, what... The, the nature of the conflict over there, just to understand all the nuances and stuff of it, there's so much complexity to it. If it was simple, it'd be solved. So you really can't take sides in that sense because, and here, here's what I'll say. So the reason the state, as far as I understand it, I'm going to qualify it again because I'm not an expert here, but the reason the state of Israel 
was created in the first place is because you had Jewish people who were marginalized and oppressed and persecuted in Europe literally for centuries, literally for centuries. So the way I understand it historically is that after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the destruction of the temple, there were there was a diaspora that dispersing that is even mentioned in the Bible of Jews throughout the Roman Empire and Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire. And these Jewish communities show up at various different places, you know, in history, 500 A.D., uh, 700 A.D., 1000 A.D., that kind of stuff. So you've always had a Jewish remnant or a Jewish presence in Europe. And for almost all of their existence, they were persecuted because, again, Catholicism, Christianity, the dominant force in Europe, the dominant force in the West. And so their communities were different. Their communities were marginalized. Their communities were persecuted. Their communities were taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So that's a very simple, very, very simple explanation of the complexity of it. And then towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, around World War I, you have this movement uh, called a Zionist movement that begins in these Jewish, European, Jewish Ashkenazi communities. And they return to a biblical idea that they have a divine right to the the Jerusalem, the land of Israel, the land in the Middle East that God laid out for them in the Old Testament. And these voices were very influential at the beginning of the last century. And Europe had a problem uh you know, there was a lot of socio-political stuff going on in Europe with Jewish communities and stuff at the time, obviously, culminated in the Holocaust and World War II, right? But it, but it goes way back before that. So what happened was, what was recognized prior to the end of the 19th century was that Judaism was primarily a faith, that persecution against Jews, prejudice against Jews, was primarily religious in its prejudice or in its orientation and not racial. It wasn't a racial distinction. It was a distinction of faith. So Christians go around, you know, there are Christians that are persecuted around the world. So Christians that are persecuted, they're persecuted because of their faith, not because of their genetics. Um People that claim in the United States that they're being persecuted as Christians, they're being persecuted not because of their family line or the color of their skin or their nationality or their ethnicity. They're being persecuted because of their faith. And so it was recognized up until the Zionist movement that this was a religious conflict, that it had to do with your faith. Well, what the Zionists did was they said, no, we're not just of faith. We're not just a people who practice the Sabbath and keep the feasts and believe in one God and go to synagogue. We are a people who have a genetic link to Abraham in the Bible, and we have a direct genetic line. We are the seed of Abraham, and since we are the seed of Abraham, we are a race of people, and we're being persecuted because of our race, not because of our faith. And 
we belong as an ethnic group. We belong as a race of people, not in Europe. We belong over in Palestine. We belong over in the Middle East. The problem is, is that Palestine was already occupied <laughs> by Palestinians. <laughs> These people are European. They, they've done genetic testing just recently. You know, they found a, a an older um, burial ground of a Jewish community from, I, I think I want to say 1000 AD. And they were able to exhume some of the bodies and do some DNA comparison between that group and uh, some Ashkenazi Jews. And what they discovered is, is that their lineage, their genetic uh, uh, characteristics, they had a lot in common. So there was a preservation of a genetics, but, it's prom- primarily a mixture of two different races or t- two different people groups. The DNA is primarily European, primarily European, which makes sense, right? But also Middle Eastern. So when you think about, I'm saying all this to say, when you think about what's happening, whatever happens, whatever has happened, whatever will happen, in the Middle East, when you think about it, I think we're thinking about it in terms of time incorrectly because Bible prophecy preachers and teachers want us to think about it in terms of the future. They love to point to Israel becoming a nation in 1948, right? <clears throat> and they love to say this was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy and God had his hand on this. Well, was it a fulfillment of Bible prophecy or was it the fact that uh, the Western world has been steeped in this biblical worldview and Abrahamic faiths for centuries. And so it just came into play. What I'm saying is, is what's happening over there has nothing to do with the future. You don't have to think about it in terms of there's some future plan out there that has to be fulfilled that's going to set up the Antichrist in a one-world system and the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. The the entire fundamentalist Christian world, the entire charismatic Christian world, for the most part, except for kingdom theology and dominion theology, which I don't have time to get into in this video. If you're interested in that, I'll get into that in another video. But since, again, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, um, they have looked at what's happening over there from a future perspective, that there's a pull from the future, that the future has already been predetermined, and there's a pull from the future, and that pull or force or cause from the future is what's affecting what's happening presently in the Middle East, when the reality is it's it makes more sense, it's more logical, and it's more accurate, and I'll tell you why it's more accurate, because Bible prophecy preachers have been wrong for almost two centuries, 100% wrong 100% of the time. So I don't even know how they still have credibility out there. That that alone right there gives me peace, that they're they're just wrong because they've been wrong over and over and over and over and over again, right? Like if a stock loses money every quarter, the company, if your stock goes down every quarter, um, why are you going to keep investing just because the CEO is telling you, yeah, but next year it's going to be different. Next year it's going to be better because it's just we're we're predetermined to have success. We're, we're not going to work, try to figure things out how we can have success. We just know we have a prophecy that we're going to be successful. You'd never invest in the stock market based on a prophecy. What do they tell you? They tell you that past performance does not guarantee future results, but it's indicative of future results. And so 
it's really more accurate to think about this from the past and realize that what's happening, and I want to be really sensitive here. I I don't want to be glib. What's happening over there is a conflict that's never been resolved. It's, It's an issue that is European primarily that never got resolved. And because Great Britain had control of the area, I think at the end of World War One, they were able to export or, ex, you know, have this exodus of a lot of European Jews into Palestine. So it's kind of like we don't know what to do. We've got these family members that are fighting. We don't know what to do with them. So we're just going to put them in the corner and let them sort it out. Only we're still somehow involved. And so what you're seeing is is just a problem that was never solved, a conflict that was never resolved, conflict that's never fixed itself on a massive global and historical scale. So that's that's my thoughts on that, all right? That's my thoughts on that. But I think it's really important to understand you can view what's happening over there as unfinished business from the past rather than an organizing of something that pertains and is linked to a specific prophetic end that is given to us in Bible prophecy. So one of the things that I did when I was still pastoring, going all the way back to the 1990s, was I began to just, like, the Bible prophecy stuff, the dispensational stuff, never made any sense to me. And I began to really research everything I could about it. And in the 1990s, I came to much different conclusions about what the book of Revelation is saying and about what Jesus is saying. I mean, so here's one thing. The word Antichrist, the word Antichrist, most people, when they think about the Antichrist, they think it's going to be this one-world ruler who's going to make everybody take the mark of the beast. And you won't be able to buy or sell or do anything unless you take the mark of the beast. Well, the word Antichrist is only mentioned by one biblical author. And that biblical author is John. And it's only mentioned in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I think only 1st and 2nd John, or maybe it's only 2nd and 3rd John. But anyway, it's only mentioned in his letters. Now, evangelicals, Pentecostals, fundamentalists, conservative Christians say that the Antichrist is in the book of Revelation. And they say that the book of Revelation was written by John the Apostle. Yet John the Apostle, when he uses the word Antichrist in his letters, not in the book of Revelation, the word Antichrist, the only biblical author to ever use the word Antichrist, who supposedly wrote the book of Revelation, never uses the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation to talk about the Antichrist. And when he talks about the Antichrist, he talks about it in the the plural, right? And Paul, in Paul's writings, I'm not going to get into this because I want to get into something else. In Paul's writings, um, he talks about the seed of Abraham being a spiritual seed. Uh, when he's talking about the end of days, the end of time, he's talking about the end of the old covenant age. He's talking about the end of that Jesus has come. The seed was until the kingdom could come in Jesus. And now that the kingdom has come. The old age, the age of sacrifice, the age of temple worship, the age of it strictly being a uh, about God's chosen people is over. And now now it's a spiritual seed. You can find that in the book of Romans, chapter two. I think the book of Romans, chapter four. And I think uh, uh, nine, ten, eleven, the book of Romans, if you want to check that out. So let me back up because I've really got more into weeds in that than I wanted to. Let's just talk about time. <clears throat> 
Let's talk about time and let's talk about the end times. And are we living in the end times? Is this the last days? Is this the end of an age, the beginning of a new age? What's what's happening? Well, first of all, let's let's think about time a little bit differently. What is time? What actually is time? It's been something that's, you know, been debated and hypothesized on and theorized about forever, right? From my perspective, I'm going to speak from my perspective because my perspective is psychology, neuroscience, um, and, of course, spirituality. Time is how we interpret the dynamics of change. Time is how we mentally map the dynamics of change that occur in our lives or in the world. So time and change are inseparable. Or you can think about it this way. The way we relate to time is the way we relate to change. Or the way we map time internally is the way we map events that have caused change in our lives. So if I were to ask you, if you could time travel, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, and you can only be there one time and you can only be there for an hour, are you going to pick some random number? Am I going to pick April 2nd, 1982? You know, a, a date that has absolutely no significance in my life. I'd have to sit there and do the math to think exactly how old I was, what grade I was in, because, you know, it has no significance to me. Or are there certain events or certain time periods where there was a lot of change happening that I would want to pick or that you would want to pick to go back to? Now, let's say you did pick a random date, like I'm going to. I'm going to go back to my 11-year-old self. I don't care what day. I'm going to go back to my 11-year-old self. I'm going to go back to my 16-year-old self. Eh, Let's say 16-year-old self. And you can talk to that self for an hour. What are you going to talk to that self about? You're going to talk about, tell me what your life was like. I don't remember. Um, Or are you going to bring with you a list of things that you want your younger self to change? I mean, just basically one of the things I've thought about is I've thought about this thought experiment. I would make a list of companies that performed well and I would talk to my younger self about investing and getting started in investing earlier and leave them a list of companies to invest in or what teams to bet on in the Super Bowl or something like that just to encourage my financial future. Why? To change the current state of my financial picture now, right? Or maybe I would say don't go to Bible college. Go and study philosophy instead. Uh, take your education more seriously. What am I saying? I'm saying to my younger self, make change and make this change right now. Make this change at this point in your life. So time for us is all about change. When we think about the past, like when I think about a past, there are certain demarcations in my life. When my mom died, there's the time before my mom died and the time after my mom died. And that's how I categorize it in my mind. When I was a pastor and when I deconstructed, when I was a pastor and before I deconstructed and after I deconstructed. And so those are the things that really grab hold of my memory. The reason why for most adults it appears that time is going faster is because we just maintain the status quo in our lives, wondering when we should change, wondering when we should take that next step, wondering when we should re like, like, when do we make radical change in our life and when do we maintain the status quo? We have no idea. We have no clue. When is the right time to do something other than intuitively or rationally or something like that? And 
So time, I want you to get that it's linked with change. Now, we in the West map time now, currently, we think about time as very linear, as in a straight line. We didn't always do that. I can do a whole video on this if this interests you guys. I'm just throwing out some ideas. We started thinking about time as linear rather than as the ancients did and a lot of people that have been unaffected by the Industrial Revolution. We started thinking about time as linear during the Industrial Revolution. It's an assembly line time. The working class knows when it's time to do something or when it's time to change. So let me make it simple for you. When my alarm clock goes off in the morning, it tells me it's time to make a change from the state of being asleep to the state of being awake. It's time for me to make a change. I'm not on vacation tomorrow. It's time for me to make a change and get ready to go to work. It's time for me to make a change and get in my car and drive to work. And then I have to be at work at 8 o'clock, and I have to stay at work at 5. So when 5 o'clock comes, what's it tell me? It tells me it's time to change. I'm no longer functioning in my role at work. It's time to change. It's time to go home. Six o'clock, it's time to change, meaning it's time to eat dinner. The seasons change. It's still not time to ski in Colorado. (laughs) When it starts snowing this month, next month, when we get a bunch of snow here, it's time for the ski lifts to open. If you tried to go skiing, and Colorado's known for skiing, if you tried to go skiing in July, if you didn't know what time it was, and you made a change and said in the middle of July, the change I'm going to make is I'm going to take a week out of my life. I'm going to change my routine for a week, and I'm going to go to Aspen. I'm going to go to Breckenridge. I'm going to go to Vail. I'm going to go to Wolf Creek. And I'm going to have my skis, and I'm going to ski down that mountain. Because it's not the right time for that change, you're going to be in a mess. You're going to be in a disaster, right? So we, we, it, it's so natural for us that we don't think about time as intimately connected with change. There's a time to make a change, time to make the status quo. So when I went on a week's vacation, I made a change in the status quo, didn't go to work. If I were to go to work tomorrow and quit, I'd be making a change in the status quo. But I don't have anything to quit to. You see what I'm saying? I don't have anything to go to. I don't have a new job to go to. So when I go to work tomorrow, it will be time for me to maintain the status quo. So we have these rhythms that we keep in our lives between the status quo and change. And those rhythms are measured or in a sense governed by the time that it is, the occasion that it is, and then we map that as past, present, future. Is this making sense to you? And this is why, so what I see in the deconstruction community with a lot of people is that, again, it's just we don't deal with complexity. It's so much simplicity that, when I was in the church, I was maintaining the status quo to, to a degree. <laughs> I was maintaining the status quo. When I deconstructed, it was time to break from the status quo. It was time for revolutionary change in my life. 
right? But what I see in the deconstruction community with a lot of people is, is they just think then every status quo is bad. Every system of status quo is bad. Every system of power is bad. It's, it's oversimplified thinking. It's Dunning-Kruger effect again. So we just think the status quo in general is bad because I was locked into the status quo and I gave up so much of my money and I gave up so, so much of my time and I gave up so much of my life when I was in the status quo of religion and Christianity. Then I broke with the status quo and that was exciting and that was freeing and that was, and I'm, I'm feeling much better or whatever the case may be. And so we think, well, then the status quo everywhere is bad. It's, it's just, it's, it's always right to break the status quo. And no, there's times to go with the status quo. So what, what are you talking about, Aaron? How does this have to do with anything with the last times? So I know when I when I put my post out there, I kind of baited people and I said, are we living in the last days? And I think we are living in the last days. But I want to qualify it. I think we're living in the last days for some people. And a lot of people, you know, because I've taught on the procession of the equinox and that we're moving, we're half moved from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. And that we're at the, at the end of one age and the beginning of another. And you guys assumed that's where I'd be going today, some of you. And I don't blame you, uh, uh, cause that's past performance, uh, in being indicative of future performance, right? But that's based on a Greek system of astrology and the procession of the equinox. I want to come back and talk about something that was over a decade ago. And that was 2012. I don't know how many of you remember 2012. And there was a big thing that caught on, especially in the New Age movement, metaphysical circles, and even in pop culture, about 2012 being the end of the world because the Mayan calendar, well, I'm using air quotes at the wrong time. The Mayan calendar, it was the Mayan calendar, predicted the end of the world was going to be 2012, or the Mayan calendar ends at 2012. Now, there's a lot of complexity in the Mayan calendar, but a lot of people, again, went with the simplicity of it. And, okay, there's going to be cataclysmic change. The poles are going to shift. There's going to be this great awakening in consciousness. There's going to be all this stuff. We start having all these opinions without even understanding anything, the first thing about the Mayan calendar. So this is where the solar eclipse comes in. This is where I think we are living in the end times. And I'm going to have to run over a little bit to qualify this because I took so long on the beginning. Now, the, the procession of the equinox moving from Pisces to Aquarius is based on a Greek system of astrology that uses as its clock, if you will, or its calendar, uses as its calendar, as its reference point. The spring equinox, so March 20th, 21st, 22nd, whatever it is, they will look at where the sun is rising in relationship to where the constellations are at night. And they'll identify a point in the sky where the sun rises. And after calculating this over many millennia, and after even confirming this with computers, you can go into computers and you can see what the sky looked like in... You know, your area in the year 1080 or whatever. Cause they can calculate and simulate those things now. So we know the, 
precession of the equinox happens. So what happens is, is that about every 2,600 years, the sun gradually moves on March, on the spring equinox, into a different constellation. And there's a couple different theories about how that happens, why that happens. Don't want to get into that. Now, the Mayans were saying something different. The Mayans were saying that a much bigger block of time would come to an end in 2012, but not just any day in 2012. And they didn't use the spring equinox. And they didn't use the zodiac. They didn't use the constellations. So for them, it wasn't about the procession of the equinox the change of the ages wasn't about the procession of the equinox. It wasn't about from moving from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. That's a Western worldview. The Mayan worldview, what the Mayans did was they used the winter solstice or December or the shortest day of the year or December 21st. So for them, they were looking at the position of the sun relative to the sky, not the spring equinox, the winter solstice. And they weren't using the constellations. They were using the configuration of the strip of the Milky Way galaxy that they could see that they thought looked like a crocodile. And so on December 21st, 2012, the sun moved into the mouth of the crocodile as though it was being swallowed up. And that, for them, marked the end of a cycle, not the end of the world, not the end of the age, any more than December 31st in, in American culture, New Year's Eve is not the end of the world. It's not the end of the age. It's not the end of the cosmos. It is the end of our calendar year. Well, what happens after the end of our calendar year? January 1st, New Year's, a new calendar begins, right? So the end of the Mayan calendar, when, when people would say the Mayan calendar ends at 2012, and people thought, well, that means the end of the world. That'd be just as bad as if we told somebody our calendar ends December 31st, and they start making all kinds of apocalyptic proclamations of huge shifts and change because they don't even know that there's a January 1st. So so it's it spirals. And so it was the end of their age. So whereas we look at ages... In the West, divided up as, you know, Taurus, Pisces, Aquarius, because we're using March 21st and the constellations as our perspective, their ages were much longer because they were using December 21st and the Milky Way. But why? Why does anybody give a flip about any of this? What difference does it make? Why did they care about that? Now, I'm going to use the Mayans as an example. Why did the Mayans care about that? The Mayans cared about that because they understood that the way they understood time, the way they mapped time, the way they identified time based on what was going on in the map of the heavens or the mirror of the heavens, would signal to them, this is really important, would signal to them when it was time for change. We still do the same thing today. Like I used the skiing example. Or if you grew up in a farming community like I did, you knew when it was time to plant. You knew when it was time to harvest based on what the earth was doing, based on what the sun was doing, based on what season it was. So we knew it's time to make the change. Or is it time to maintain the status quo? So on this larger calendar of ages that the Mayans had, they understood that 
December 21st, 2012, would be a time of massive, major, revolutionary change. And so one archaeologist that I saw, an expert on Mayan culture that I saw interviewed, he said there are artifacts and indications that in previous times when this happened, when the calendar rolled over of the ages, they would make massive changes in their political system. They would move and relocate to different places. In other words, like whether or not I go on vacation or go to work, that's minor change. So it's put into like very small chunks of time. Um, every four years we have an election, right? So we're coming up on an election year and we'll vote next November for who our president's going to be. And that's going to signal then at the inauguration in January, that signals a time for a national change, right? We still do these things today. We just have no concept at all in our culture of massive global change or massive society change or massive, a totally new way of doing everything on a global massive scale because we don't have a calendar that keeps track of those types of seasons, those types of time periods, those types of epochs. So when the Bible's talking about the end of the age, it's not talking about the end of the world. When the Bible's talking about the end of the age, it's not talking about the end of the world. It's talking about time for a major massive shift in the way Israel related to God. So it would no longer be the sacrificial system. It would no longer be the temple system. It would no longer be in Jerusalem. No longer be, as Jesus said, on this mountain or that mountain, but it would be in spirit and in truth. It would be around the Messiah or the mystical vision of the Messiah. The new Jerusalem was not a Jerusalem on the earth. The new Jerusalem was a Jerusalem in the heavens. It shifted to a more mystical type of uh, faith away from this, this other type of thing. But it wasn't the end. Something new was beginning. So this is where it depends on your perspective. Is this the end times? For some it is, because it depends on your perspective. And your perspective is based on change and how you relate to change. So we can get into all this stuff about we're moving out of the age of Pisces and into the age of Aquarius. We're moving out of the Mayan age, and the Mayan calendar started over December 22nd, uh, 2012. And that signaled massive change. They were right. It signaled massive change. It didn't signal massive changes, though some intelligent force outside was orchestrating a shift of the poles or massive floods or uh, earthquakes or anything like that or the end of the world. It just signaled a time when the old age was over. For the ancient Greeks and, and Babylonians that followed the procession of the equinox, the end of each age signaled a time for massive change in the same way that November 7th next year signals the time that it's time to vote and it's time for an administration change over our nation. So here then becomes the question. It doesn't matter what time it is. It matters what change are you navigating right now, what change are you willing to make, and what change are you being invited into. And I do believe, I do believe, that uh, uh, there is something significant, some, whether it's the way the astrological tides and waves are impacting our consciousness. I know there's a lot of people in, on here that don't believe in astrology. That's your business. Um, I've had some astrology charts done that were just absolutely mind-blowing. Um in, in terms of their identifying things, identifying seasons that I was in and predictive changes. 
Um, but that all, you know, from that perspective, all how it's affecting me as a person. So I do think that, that we're in a new cycle, right? And this new cycle is signaling to us. These things are signaling to us. Maybe even the fact that we just, the Jews just had the Feast of Tabernacles, just got invaded by Hamas. And in parts of the Western Hemisphere, North, Northern Hemisphere, whichever, there was a full solar, solar eclipse, is signaling to us that it's time for massive change. But that massive change doesn't have to be the end. It can be an entirely new beginning. It can be an entirely new beginning. And it's important that we develop some system of time and when it's time to make change. And I don't know how we do that. I'd love to hear read your thoughts in the comments. I don't know how we do that. But uh, so what I'm saying is, like, how are you embracing change? How are you relating to change? That's the more important question. What are you doing with change? What are you changing? What changes are you noticing? What changes are you embracing? What changes are you avoiding and putting off? Because if you put off a change, when it's time for the change, you can't you can't go back and redo it necessarily and have the same momentum it, any more than you can go skiing in the mountains of Colorado in July. Sometimes you have to seize the opportunity of a lifetime during the lifetime of the opportunity. Otherwise, you're trying to ski in Colorado in summer and you wonder why it's not working and you have to wait for another cycle of change to come around. So that begs the question. For those of you that are going through deconstruction, for those of you that are going through change or maintaining the status quo, how do you know in your personal life when it's time to maintain the status quo and when it's time to make radical change? 2016, for me, it was a time to make radical change. And I knew at the time that that was a seven-year cycle. So now I'm back on another seven-year cycle. And I made radical change. Radical change. Change in career during that seven year cycle, change in career change. The only thing I didn't change is the place that I live. And I think I probably should have changed that. (laughs) And so is it time for you to make change? Are you avoiding change? Are you avoiding radical change because you're just more comfortable in the status quo? Or are you trying, are you fighting trying to make change because you're so stirred up with rebellion against the status quo? And it's really time for you to maintain the status quo and not make those changes. And then you jump out and make those changes and fall flat on your face and wonder why you fell flat on your face because, or wonder why there's no ski lift to help you, no momentum to help you get to the change because you're trying to ski in Colorado in July. I'm using a silly metaphor, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. And so we can't necessarily put off change. Sometimes these things are just intuitive. Sometimes you have to be in tune with your own energy force. You have to be in tune with your own, um, you know, Call it whatever you want, your own energy, your own aura, your own light being, your own spiritual body, whatever the case may be. But you, you've got to be in touch to know now's the time to act. And so this is why we don't make changes, because it's easier to stay in the status quo. The, the new change, the change can be scary, especially if we don't know what changes to make, especially if we don't know what future we're moving into, right? So here's the difference. For people who recognize that on an individual level, societal level, and I believe personally, my personal conviction, on a global level, 
we are seeing a time of massive change for us as individuals and as the human race. Then we have to start relating to change. And how am I relating to this change? So I know for my brethren, I'm convinced of this, my brethren in Christianity who are sticking with the old systems and the old ways of doing things, it's very clear those things are not working, and it's been clear for decades that those things are not working. I think it's very clear that our political system in America is not working. I saw a meme the other day, and I thought it was hilarious. Uh, the meme was, has anybody tried unplugging the United States and plugging it back in? <laughs> Because I think our political systems aren't working. I think our approach to spirituality isn't working. I think, I think everything that can be shaken is being shaken right now because we are in a time of cataclysmic change in the earth. But for my brethren that want to hold on to that old stuff, it is the end of the world for them. It is the end of the age for them. It is the last days for them. They are in the last days of the church system as we knew it. They're in the last days of the Christian system. As we knew it, when they're prophesying this is the end of the age, they're absolutely right. When they're prophesying this is the end of the world, because their world revolves around church. Their world revolves around these institutions. Their world revolves around these structures. And anything or anybody that challenges the old world. uh, We see this a lot with racial equality. We see people who uh, uh, anything that might challenge the old system, especially in America, the old white patriarchal system, <laughs> we call <laughs> if that's being challenged and changed because the, just the, our society as a whole is becoming more and more collectively populated with people of color and people of different ethnicities and people of different orientations and people of different ways of thinking about marriage and patriarchy and things like that. And we live under a democracy. It's the end of the age. It's the end of the world. Like that world's not going to exist. So any force of change that may be coming to replace the white patriarchal system, which was based on an agricultural system, which we're not in the age of agriculture anymore at all. It's the end of the world for them. Anything that's challenging and saying we can have spirituality outside of these religious systems, that's destroying their world. The sun's falling. The, the, the stars are falling from the sky. You see what I'm saying? Anything that's challenging scientific materialism and the academies to think differently about our world, to think differently about reality, It's the end of the age. So they're clinging to it. So for people that are clinging to the old, when change has come, when change has come and the change is happening and the change has happened and you're not relating to the change and you're not adapting to the change and you're not changing with the change, then you're no longer living in a world that exists. Just like to bring it full circle, the quote I read from the Rudolf Steiner book, you can never swim in the same way twice. You can never lay hold of the same mortal man twice. You can never meet the same person twice because we're in a constant state and dynamic of change. And so when I try to stay static, when I try to stay permanent in a world of impermanence, I'm no longer, that world no longer exists. That world has died. That world has ended. 
So now I'm only living in an illusion, literally a creation of my own mind, something I'm generating in my own mind that has no correspondence to reality. So for me, it is the last days. For another group of people, there can be a looking forward. There can be a looking forward into a new future. It's it's a new beginning. And here's what I want to say, and this is where I'm going to close. It's a new beginning because we want simple, because we want quick. We think that we should be able to move when, when we get to the end of a cycle, that cycle's finished. We think we should be able to move from the maturity, the full product of the, of what our lives were about, the end of that, and just shift over into a finished product. Like buying a new house. I sell this house and I go and move into a new house and maybe it takes me 45 days to close the deal and pack and move and all that stuff, right? Finished product to finished product. No, what this is, new beginnings, that's not a new beginning. New beginning is buying a plot of land and building a house. takes longer, see what I mean? So everything, every massive major change, everything, everything in the universe, even you, begins small at first. <laughs> you became as a fertile, you began as an embryo in the womb, not a full-grown human being. If you do gardening, you plant seeds, right? So the new beginning is you're not going to have the finished product. You're not going to know necessarily what it's going to look like. You're not going to see the full blueprint. You may just have a seed. You may have a seedling of an idea of what the future could be like for you. You might just have a seedling of an idea of what this change is going to look like. It's just an it's embryonic right now. And so you've got a choice. I can embrace the seed. I can embrace what little I know. I can embrace what little information I have and a whole ton of uncertainty about what it's going to become and how it's going to become. And I don't even understand how a seed grows in the ground or how a embryo becomes a baby in the womb, right? I don't even understand that stuff or how an embryo becomes a full-grown uh, mature adult. And so it's scary because I've got, I've got the finished product here. So I've got, I want to stay in the finished product, but that house is being demolished, man. They got the, the, they've already, the, you know, they've already started the demolition project. They've already started breaking the windows and tearing the house down, right? And so we don't want to embrace new beginnings, new cycles, because new cycles require an embryonic beginning, a seed form stage. So you can relate to this change that's going on by it's the last days, it's the end of the age, or there's a new age, there's a new life. You can make this individual, collective, however you want to look at it, but understand it's in its seed form right now. It's an embryo right now. That's the difference. That's what a new beginning is all about. And that's what the Mayan calendar was trying to tell us, that if the Mayan culture had withstood and then December 21st, 2012, they would have made massive changes. And maybe the mind communities that are in existence today, maybe they did. I don't know. Um, but anyway, let me let me know your thoughts on this. Um, a lot of good comments and stuff. I've already gone over my time, so I'm going to have to let you go. I can't wait to go back and look at the comments. Thank you for watching this. If you watch this until the end, I really appreciate it. If you watch it by replay, I also have this on podcast. If you like the work that we're doing, you can support us at New Day Global. Um, by uh, going to our PayPal link. The PayPal link is in the description. It's just paypal.me forward slash New Day Global. Uh, this is Aaron Tomlinson. Thank you for watching the Sunday Morning Live. If you haven't joined the Facebook group for New Day Global, um, 
the link is in my bio if you're on YouTube. And uh, I'll be back um, tomorrow night at 6 o'clock to talk some more about this and answer any questions that I see in the comments or any questions that may come up. If you have a chance to catch that live, that'd be awesome. So anyway, um, this is Aaron Tomlinson, back from vacation. Hope everybody's doing well and is blessed. And uh, I hope this video really helps you 